Would you please open your Bibles and turn with me to the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 47. As you folks know, I'm just a plain old-fashioned Bible preacher. So please open your Bibles and turn to chapter 47 of the prophet Ezekiel. Chapter 47, verses 1 and onwards. Dear hearts and gentle people. Ezekiel chapter 47. And if you don't have a Bible, you'll see there are Bibles in the pews or in the seats. The backs of the seats. Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 and onwards. Are you ready to read? Ready to go, folks? Are you glad you're in church today? Hmm. Ezekiel 47, verse 1. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. The water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand, led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen, was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabar where it empties into the sea, that is, the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the Dead Sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There'll be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En Eglaim. There'll be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. My friends, there is no more desolate place in the world than the area of the Dead Sea where the little Jordan River flows. Nothing lives there because the water is so contaminated with so much salt. But God said, I have a plan. And one day this plan is going to be fulfilled in the providence of God. God said, there is a river that is going to flow out of the sanctuary. And that river is going to start off small. But as the river grows, goes, it is going to grow and it is going, going to become a mighty river. And the Bible says the water of that river is going to turn the salt into sweetness and death into life. 
Everywhere the river goes, there is going to be blessing. And I want you to notice, my friend, this is the river that flows from the sanctuary. And I want you to know this today. This river is symbolic of the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ as it flows from the church to the world. It is the plan of God that from the church will flow a river. Yes, it may start off as a little shallow river and people may say there's nothing much to it. But God loves to take small things and turn them into great things for His glory and for the salvation of the lost. I want you to notice the amazing effects of this river. Please notice uh, chapter 47, verse 9 again. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There'll be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. The Bible tells me that this old world without the grace of God is like the Dead Sea and there's no life in it because of the salt, because of the contamination. But the Bible says wherever the true gospel of Jesus goes, everything is going to come alive again. And the salt is going to be sweet. The state of a man without Christ is a state of death. People are lost without Christ. We are not born saved. Some people have this terrible notion that we're saved while we're in darkness. No, my friend, we are dead in trespasses and sins. And the good news is that wherever the water goes, there comes life. It is God's glory to turn the salt into sweetness. Some time ago, USA News World Report made this analysis. The most blessed countries in the world today, the most honest countries, the best countries to live, the best places where a businessman can go and do business are those countries that were blessed by the preachers of the true gospel that came out of the Bible Reformation of the 16th century. In fact, USA News and World Report colored the world from red to green. And the red countries are the countries that have seen communism and atheism and false religious systems such as south of the border. Those countries that turned away from the gospel of God even in Europe are colored in the darkest red. This map was not put out by believers. It was put out by hard-headed businessmen who said, if you want to see corruption, go where the Word of God is despised. 
the most blessed countries in the world, the freest countries, the most prosperous countries in the world, the most enlightened countries in the world are the countries that have been the most influenced by the blessed gospel of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Never, never, never say it doesn't matter what a person believes. Truth makes a difference. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have seen it with my own eyes. I've traveled to countries where women are in the streets washing clothes in the gutters. Why? Because of a false religious system. I've gone to countries where the governments are not just corrupt, they are utterly, utterly, utterly corrupt. And they are countries that turned away from the blessed gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The most blessed Places that the places that are most influenced by Christ in His Word. I've travelled through the highlands of Papua New Guinea, where once upon a time it was not safe for a white man to go or for a black man to go, for that matter, because the people who lived there were headhunters; they were cannibals. But I've gone to those places where Christian ministries from my own homeland have gone to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. They've gone there with no arms, with no guns, with no bayonets, with no tanks, with no planes, with no force around them except the force of the Spirit of God. And what you see today are villages that are clean and peaceful and filled with happy inhabitants. In fact, some time back, the post office received a letter written to the clean people of Papua New Guinea, to the clean people, and they sent it to the clean people who preached the Bible. Because where the Bible goes... It brings prosperity. It brings peace. It brings joy. People today are tremendously concerned about government programs. I want to tell you the greatest program for the uplifting of the human race doesn't come out of Washington. It comes out of the Bible. Christ is the hope of the world. Don't be taken in by the smooth enchantments of politicians. My friend Vadim and I have been together in Dzinsk. If it's not the most polluted city in Russia, it's one of the most polluted. The life expectancy of a Russian male in Dzinsk is around 40 years. It was the center of the great Soviet chemical industry. You see, the Soviets did not believe in God, and if you don't believe in God, you don't believe in people. As somebody said, God died in the 19th century and man died in the 20th. When God, my friend, is blotted out from the memory of men, then woe betide man. We've been to this city, the poverty. We talk about poverty in America, you don't know what poverty is. Talk about street people, you don't know what street people are. People living on $10 a month, living in filthy dirty, hopeless little apartments when it drops 40 degrees below. No heating. And there, by the grace of God, we have built a church. When I looked into the faces of the church members, I saw 
tears of joy. I saw peace. I saw happiness. The pollution of Dzinskis. An illustration of the pollution of sin and man without God. But when Christ comes, what a difference, what a difference. Where the river goes, my friend, there is life. There's only one thing that stands between the American people and the American government and the Washington bureaucrats and the wrath of God. It is the Christian church. Blot out the Christian church from America and this nation would go to hell in five minutes. The happiest people are the people who drink of the river. The river that turns salt to sweetness. It is death-defying. It is life-giving. I ask, what, is, what are the contents of that river? Jesus, our blessed Lord, said, He who believes on me, out of him shall flow rivers of living water. For this he spoke of the Spirit of God. That river contains no man-made teaching. It doesn't contain the politics of Washington in the church or out of the church. It contains the gospel of Christ. The river represents the Spirit of God flowing from the church as the Spirit carries the true gospel to the world, do you know the true gospel? Not every gospel that is preached in churches is the true gospel. Do you have a pastor who preaches the true gospel? Not all pastors preach the true gospel. What is the true gospel? The gospel, as you know, is the Greek word good news. It is not good advice on how we get good by our own works or by just going to church. The gospel is the good news that God became a man. God of very God from all eternity was Christ. That on the cross of Calvary, he made a complete blood atonement for the sin of the world. That on the cross, the bolts of God's wrath were directed against his son, and his son became sin for us. He knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the true gospel. Anything less than that is humbug. The gospel talks about the resurrection and the ascension, and the intercession of Christ as our high priest, and the consummation of the gospel is that this Christ will come again in power and great glory to take his people home. That is the river that transforms the world. What is the purpose of the church? To get out the vote for some legislative purpose? The purpose of the church is not to get out the vote, but to get out sinners and save them in the kingdom. 
The kingdom of God advances not because of political lobbyists, religious lobbyists who crowd the, the corridors of Congress and the Senate in the name of God with a religious agenda. That is not the way the church of God advances. That's the way the church goes to hell. The agenda of the church is to evangelize, not to engage in worldly enterprises, not to become involved in power politics, not in the world I'm talking about, in the church. The church is called to preach the gospel. And as Spurgeon said, when the church despises the pulpit, God will despise the church. People say, I want a better job. I want to be elevated. I want to have some office job. Such unconverted people, because they are, do not understand the gospel of our Christ. The greatest of all works was given to our blessed Lord when he said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. The greatest of all work is to be part of the river. There's another river, you know. It turns sweetness to salt, turns life to death. Some time back, I was in Baghdad, went way north of Baghdad, up around Mosul, had some great experiences. And I was standing on the banks of the Tigris River early in the morning. Oh, what a stinking river it was just there. Saddam had turned it into a filthy wasteland with all these wretched, obnoxious, polluting chemicals. It had become a vast river of death, a stinking sewer. And there are rivers like that in the world today too. The river of humanism, secularism, the new methodology is described by the great Dr. Francis Schaeffer. All of these the rivers, these rivers are polluting America, maybe polluting your life too. Rivers flowing from the internet, rivers that come out of Hollywood, Produced by men who are socialists, Marxists, atheists, people who hate God, who are Christ-haters, who are despisers of that which is good, haters of the righteous. Those rivers have polluted the world. People ask, why is there so much problem in the public schools? It is easy. God has been outlawed on the campus. That is why the schools of America have become the new killing fields. People say, why, why, why? And then the politicians say, we must set up another committee and we must investigate what has gone wrong with our schools. As Dr. Billy Graham's son said, schools are dangerous places when the commandments of God are removed. So we have today a vast river of pollution that has burst the banks, a river that is filled with lies and deception 
and filth and pornography and every abominable practice. But the church is called by the living God to open up the gates and unleash upon the world the river of life. That is the plan of God for the church. What about your church? You who are visitors here today, what are you doing? Are you simply playing church? Do you go to church because it's a social club? If your church was blotted out, would anybody care? Would anybody know? Does the world care about your church? Does it even know about your church? If it does not, it is because it is a gross irrelevancy and the world would be better off without it. The church is called to be not just a mighty army, but a mighty river, not self-serving, not preoccupied with self. Think what it can do. Think of John Wesley, a little Englishman, five foot four, a master Oxford, a scholar, long golden locks down to his shoulders, clergyman's robe on the back of a horse. Forty-two thousand sermons. No. Yes, yes. Forty-two thousand sermons, 360 miles on the back of a horse. I thought I had it ran the wrong way. 42,000 sermons, 360,000 miles, not on nice leather heated Lexus seats, but on the back of a horse. Why? Dr. Edwards says, the great heresy is in the church. Just be nice. That's all we're called to do. Goodness, what nonsense. What nonsense we believe on occasions. Sure, we're called to be nice. We're called to represent Christ. But we're called to preach Christ to the world. That's the purpose of the church. To unleash upon the world a river that turns salt to sweetness. After Wesley started preaching, he was amazed at the state of of the world. Every sixth house in London was a grog shop, grog, alcohol. They hung out signs saying they'd make a man drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence, and provide straw for him to lie on until he got better. Children were born in the mines. Wesley because he believed that people were lost without Christ, went out and preached. You know our problem today in the church? We don't believe that people are lost without Christ. We don't believe it. We don't, many of us don't believe the gospel. We've got a moral influence gospel. We've got a perfectionistic gospel. We've got every sort of gospel except the gospel of God. That's why our churches are weak and impotent and nobody knows about us. People are lost without Christ. 
Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You're going to say to me, are there going to be people then lost because we didn't go? Yes. Then I'm responsible, you say. Am I responsible? Yes. I don't want to be responsible. No, of course not. You are responsible. I am responsible. I personally would like to retire on a nice tropical island that has a first-class Hilton. <laughs> nice food. I'd like that. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? My message today will not please all of you. There's one problem with this message. It's the truth. You may say, but if it's the truth, then many of us are judged guilty. If it's the truth, many of our churches are judged guilty. Let God do the judging. But you judge yourself. The Bible said if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. Little wonder Paul said, I'm a debtor. Both to the Greeks, and to the Jews, the barbarians, the free, the slaves. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. People are saved through the river of life. If you look closely at that river, you'll find it's a river that's red. Because that river is the blood of Christ. It is through the blood of Christ that the world is saved. And it is for that great grand purpose. Today, we dedicate this building for the preaching of the true gospel and the salvation of the lost. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. It is my great privilege to introduce a preacher's preacher, a wonderful Christian gentleman, a colleague and a friend, Dr. Rex Edwards. Thank you, John. I can scarcely wait to hear what I'm going to say. <laughs> so I shall defer to the psalmist, as for me, he cried, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood.
And as I stepped into this beautifully refurbished sanctuary this morning, I said to myself, something happened in church. And congratulations. There was the old music teacher who was asked by an admiring student, Professor, what is the good news? The old master was silent for a moment, and then with deliberate step, he walked over to the piano, picked up a tuning fork, and struck it. And as that note reverberated around the studio, he said, that note is A. It is A today, it was A 2,000 years ago, and it will be A 10,000 years from now. That is the good news. And the good news about the Carter Report is that there is one note being sounded, one constant, that will be reverberating today as it has been reverberating for the last decade and will continue by the grace of God to reverberate tomorrow. And that one constant, that one note being sounded is evangelism. And yet, in spite of the fact that the instruction to evangelize was the only commandment that Jesus ever repeated, in all of his last appearances to his followers, in the average Christian church, evangelism is marginalized, even opposed. I'm reminded of the deacon who came to William Carey, that great missionary to India, and said, if God wanted the heathen to be converted, he would convert them. And this controversy impelled a young man to ask the Duke of Wellington why he supported foreign missions and believed in evangelism, to which the old soldier replied in a form of a question, what were your general's marching orders? Listen, without evangelism, the Christian church, like the Christian faith, would vanish from the face of the earth. In fact, the church is always like a boat above Niagara Falls, steadily drifting towards extinction. Why? Because Christianity has always been confronted with two challenges. One is the cemetery, and the other challenge is the maternity ward. You see, the cemetery removes committed Christians, but does not replace them. Its birth rate is too low. And while church membership increases between 20 to 25,000 a day, by contrast, world population grows 10 times as fast. And on the other side, you have the maternity ward that brings with it an inherited Christian faith. Problem, church membership is not passed along. And while begetting places children in their parents' racial group, there is no natural process 
that places children in their parents' religious group. So if church members do not labor unceasingly to evangelize, the church will die out. Now, this is supposed to be a dedicatory homily with emphasis on the purpose of evangelism. Let me identify three objections to evangelism which if unchallenged will doom any congregation to extinction. And let me affirm this morning that the Carter Report vehemently repudiates each one of these objections. Each of these will begin with the letter P. Objection number one is presumption. <laughs> Evangelism is God's work, not ours. In the words of the Indian poet, it is not yours to open the bud into a blossom. That's beautiful. But there's more to be said. While the gardener cannot presume to pry open the bud, he can relocate the plant so that it can be opened by the sun. It's the old story of you should have seen this garden when God was the only one who was working here. God, in his great love, has given to us incomparable dignity and importance by moving over and making room for us in his occupation. So we are laborers together with God. You know, there's always a certain semi-Pelagianism in church work. The things a church tries to do are absolutely impossible apart from God's miracles. But God's miracles will not be granted unless the church does its part. The wind blows where it wills, but unless someone hoists the sails, no ship will come to port. As for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood, understood what? That every church worker feels ridiculous. What we are trying to do is absurdly beyond our best human performance. But we have the trust that if we do our little parts, God will do his big part. We reject the notion that evangelism is God's work, not ours. It's a partnership. We are laborers together with God. Objection number two that will doom any congregation, I'm going to call personality. Our lives are our evangelism. You ever hear that? 
It was Henry Drummond who said that the best argument for Christianity is a Christian. In other words, he was saying that the gospel is not held in captivity to words. We evangelize, it is argued, not by talking, but by revealing what Christ has done for us. Now, there's a lot of truth in that which we must never forget. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they by seeing your good works will glorify your Father who is in heaven. And Peter reminds us that many people, unbelievers, are led to Christianity because of the lives of Christians. The great Augustine told how the saintly Ambrose was made receptive to the truth. He said, I began to love him, not at first as a teacher of the truth, which I despaired of finding in thy church, but as a fellow creature who was kind to me. But it can work the other way as well. The Apostle Paul concluding a passage on hypocrisy, warned the Roman Christians the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Nietzsche was not entirely unfair when he said, you will have to look more redeemed if I am to believe in your Redeemer. There's no question our lives are our credentials as workers for God. Our influence to a, a great extent depends on what we are. Lawrence Houseman reminds us that a saint is one who makes goodness attractive. That's very true, but it is not evangelism. The most beautiful Christian in any community will never lead another person to a daily thought of God, to prayer, or to saving truth unless the knowledge of God and prayer and saving truth are made explicit. The most faithful congregation that is giving itself unsparingly to the alleviation of human need will attract admiring outsiders who will remain outsiders unless the possibility of accepting the Christian faith is made personal. May I remind you that Augustine's affection for Ambrose, while it made him open to Christianity, did not make him a Christian. It took many hours of painful, painstaking instruction and motivating before Augustine was converted to Christianity. Listen. The knowledge of who Christ is, what he has done, what he will do, is conveyed by words. And the fad of dismissing language as unauthentic defies logic. It insults intelligence. I'm aware that there are linguistic studies that clearly demonstrate that no language is capable of 
combining all of any one single truth, but it's the only form of communication that serves to transmit thoughts. Remember, Jesus conveyed conceptions from the mind of God to the mind of man by words. He called himself the Word. Gave us the gift of speech and enabled us to tell of him, O Lord, cried the psalmist, open thou my lips that my mouth might sing thy praises. Our lives are our evangelism indeed. It's not entirely modest to say, well, <laughs> I don't need to talk about Jesus Christ because all you need to know about him you can discover by looking at me. No one of us lives out an adequate witness to the Christian faith. No congregation is so radiant an embodiment of Christ that people are transformed merely by observing it. <laughs> As for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood what? That true evangelism is neither indefinite nor does it have to be disguised. Objection number three, periodicity. The time is not right. Ever hear that? It is often assumed that church life moves in cycles like the stock market and the weather and sun sports, and therefore it is useless to attempt evangelism when the time is not right. I've also heard it vehemently argued that it is pointless in engaging in evangelism when the church is experiencing a spiritual ebb tide, that's about as illogical as saying, now is a poor time for breathing. You know, first revitalize and revivalize and then evangelize. My experience is that those who take that position experience very little revival and no evangelism. We do not become spiritually qualified by thinking of ourselves. It is the deliberate act of reaching out to others that we become more aware of what we believe more grateful for what God has done for us and more dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Evangelism knows no seasons, no special decades, no special periods. The command to make disciples is neither seasonal nor is it periodic and the power to do it which the Holy Spirit gives is not turned on and off. Behold, now! is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And people who need Christ now should not have to spend their lives 
while the church waits for some conjectural better time to tell about him. When Robert Louis Stevenson lay dying in Samoa, he received a note from a clergyman asking if he would like a visit from a minister as to one who was in danger of dying. Stevenson declined and he said he would welcome a visit from a minister as to one who was in danger of living. The purpose of evangelism is not merely to save men and women from the danger of dying without Christ, but also to save them from the danger of living without Christ. It is a dreadful thing to think of any person missing for a single day the wonders of a life in Christ. What do you say? But what hope is there if we abdicate our responsibility and say evangelism is God's work, not ours? What hope is there if we uh, retreat into the world of non-verbalization and say our lives are our evangelism? I ask you, what hope is there if we by sinful diffidence procrastinate and say the time is not right? We want, that is the Carter Report, wants the community of Arcadia, the administration of the Southern California Conference and the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists to know that this sanctuary, this people of God, this ministry is dedicated in order to affirm that God uses human instrumentalities, that we are laborers together with God, that this sanctuary, this people of God, this ministry is dedicated in order to demonstrate that true evangelism combines word and deed, verbal testimony and ethical witness, that this sanctuary, this people of God, this ministry is dedicated today to announce that there are no closed seasons for the fishes of men. And it is my prayer this morning that this ministry will not regress and become an institution parading self-glory, but it will be what God intends a producing army that sees the invisible, expects the incredible, and accomplishes the remarkable because it's committed to the glory of God. Rex, thank you so much. Now, I want you to get down on your knees as we pray.
want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Our Father, we come into your presence today. We thank you today for the blessed gospel of Jesus. Sometimes we wondered, why did he go to the cross? But then there was no other way. If he hadn't gone to the cross and made an atonement for our sins, took our sins upon himself, suffered the wrath of God because he identified himself with us, there would be no heaven. There would be no hope. We thank you for this blessed river that flows from the sanctuary of God that turns saltiness into sweetness. And Lord, without you, we're just a lot of salt. And we're dead. But we thank you that when the river of the blood of Christ comes, the bitterness becomes sweet. And the dead becomes alive. Some of us today, our Father, are salty, bitter. Oh God, today, pour the river upon us. As we're praying today with our heads bowed, our eyes closed in the presence of God, how many in this place of worship will raise a hand and say, oh, I want the blood of Jesus over me today. I want my sins forgiven. Lift up your hand if you can say that today, friend. Make it a commitment and don't be afraid to say yes to God. I see some of you folks have got up two hands. That's great. I want the blood of Jesus over me today. I want to be washed from my sins. I want the saltiness to go and I want to become sweet in Christ. So someone else today, raise your hand today. If you need that experience today. Dear Father, look at these upraised hands, bless them. These upraised hearts, bless them. Wash us, cleanse us, put your spirit in us, put a fire in our bones. Teach us, dear Father, to be Bible Christians and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. And each one of us to do all we can to send the river on its blessed way. Bless these dear people today with your peace, your grace, your love and your power through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.